Hi, this is Doug Hooley, and you're listening to the Called Out Cafe podcast. And if you hear some heavy breathing in the background, it's just my Bernese Mountain Dog, Copper. (laughs) Well, on one particularly slow news day, I watched a feature story on a local station that was inspired by a group of astronomers. They're putting on a symposium in the city close to where I live. The topic of the news story was, just where is the center of the universe? Quickly taking the philosophical fork in the road, leaving science behind, the reporter put this question to random citizens on the street. The answers varied a little, but one seemed to be dominating the others. It was in fact the reporter's own answer. From his perspective, the center of the universe is wherever he is. That got me thinking. I wonder how a typical, true follower of Jesus would answer that question. A follower of Jesus that understands the master-servant relationship we have with him. A servant that understands who their master is. The one who walked the earth as a human but who was the exact image of his Father in heaven, who created both the observable and unseen universe. The one who now sits at the right hand of his Father. The one who holds the universe together through only his will. While maintaining a theme of watchfulness, Jesus addresses the master and servant relationship. He points out both the pitfalls of not being watchful and the benefits of being watchful through the telling of a story about a servant who has been put in charge of his master's household while the master is away. This is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 45 to 51. I'm reading from my own translation here. As always, I encourage you to read it on your own, in your own translation that you find reliable. Here we go. Who then is a faithful and wise servant who the Lord has made ruler over his household to give them food at the proper time? Fortunate is the servant who is found doing so when the Lord comes. I'm telling you the truth. He will give him authority over all his possessions. But if the evil servant says in his heart that the master is delayed, and he begins to beat his fellow servants, and begins to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day that he is not looking for him, and at an hour that he is not aware of, and will cut him in two and assign him his portion with the hypocrites. There will be wailing and grating of teeth. This story casts Jesus in the role of the master who goes away. The true and faithful disciple of Jesus plays the role of the good servant. The bad servant represents one who is a Christian in name only. You'll find a very similar parable found in Luke chapter 12, verses 42 to 48. Regarding where the bad servant will be sent, the Luke account says that the servant will be assigned to the same place as, quote, unbelievers, unquote, rather than the Matthew passage, which says they'll be assigned with hypocrites. The servant, representing his or herself as a believer, while not really being one, is both a hypocrite and an unbeliever. Whereas many stories and parables that Jesus told use symbolism, the servants in this story are really intended to represent literal servants. I've discovered that there are those that are within the church who don't particularly like being thought of as servants. Some are more comfortable with thinking of themselves as a child of God 
or a joint heir with Jesus, or other such titles that convey more of a sense of freedom and authority than the title that a servant does. Although those titles may also fit, after all, we will one day rule and reign with Jesus, the New Testament is rich in Scripture, pointing out that those of us who have been purchased by Jesus through the shedding of His blood on the cross are indeed His bondservants. Many who choose to accept Jesus as their Savior have tragically missed or don't understand a major part of the transaction that took place when Jesus shed his blood for them on the cross. They know with his blood Jesus redeemed them by paying the price or penalty or making atonement for their sin. However, they've neglected, although probably unintentionally, an entire component of what the blood of Christ did. What the shedding of Jesus' blood accomplished is of such importance that it cannot be missed if Christians are going to even begin to understand our roles and our very purpose as followers of Christ. It's only through having the knowledge of this particular essentiality that we should approach our God in prayer in the name of our Master Jesus. We have to grasp this principle in order to try to understand His Word or even understand how we as Christians should do our business and live in this world while we await Jesus' coming. A lamb, in the fifth chapter of Revelation, looking as though it had been butchered or slain, is seen by the Apostle John as he entered the throne room of heaven in his vision. An unquestionable case is made by the immediate and greater context that this lamb represents Jesus. God chose to use the imagery of a slain lamb to represent Jesus rather than the familiar form of a man. Jesus is referred to as the Lamb 29 times in the book of Revelation alone. God often uses symbols in prophecy like this lamb as a means of communicating a complex message or concept across time and culture. The answer as to why Jesus is seen as a lamb starts to unfold as we listen to the words of those that are also seen gathered around the throne, along with the Apostle John, in Revelation chapter 5. In that scene in heaven, they sing a new song. In that song, the singers give praise to Jesus for what he did when he, like a sacrificial lamb of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, paid the price for and made atonement for sin. The difference between the routinely made Old Covenant sacrifices and Jesus' sacrifice is that Jesus paid this price once and for all, for all mankind. This sacrifice was for all who ever had and ever would exist. The Apostle Peter put it this way. This is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your own vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The sinner's redemption was not paid for with normal currency like silver or gold or other worldly goods, but with the precious blood of Christ. It's what Jesus did in the role of a sacrificial lamb that makes being a Christian possible. It's only because he redeems one from one's sins that they're able to be spiritually reborn and enter the kingdom of God. However, when Jesus steps in and pays off someone's debt with his blood, 
Redemption from sin is only part of what happens during the miraculous transaction. With his blood, he also purchases the person that accepts him as his or her redeemer. Listen to the words of Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof. For thou was slain and has redeemed us to God by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. The word translated in the King James Version of the Bible as ransomed is the Greek word agarazo, meaning to buy or purchase. A one-time everlasting transaction took place as Jesus traded his life's blood for the eternal souls that would follow after him. Those souls, by the grace of God, were chosen from a time before the foundations of the earth were set in place. With his blood, they were not only saved from eternal damnation, but they were also purchased from among mankind to become a special people of God. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote Titus about this. This is found in chapter 2, verses 13 to 14 in Titus. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Here's another passage that pertains. This is found in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the ecclesia, the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. It's hard to miss the fact in the New Testament that Jesus not only paid the price for redeeming his servants in full, but he also purchased them in the transaction as his own possessions. He didn't pay for our sins only to turn us out as free agents to be victimized by our own flesh again, but so that we may serve him as bond servants, just as those closest to Jesus did. Like the Apostle Paul, of whom we read in Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God. And like Peter, of whom we read in 2 Peter 1.1, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And James, of whom we read in James 1.1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greeting. Did John consider himself a servant? You betcha he did. In Revelation 1, we read, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant, which was John, of course. And like Jude, of whom we read in Jude 1 1, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called.
The Greek word translated as servant, or more appropriately, bond servant, in all of these passages is doulos, which is an adjective meaning servant or to be in bondage. The book of Revelation is addressed to the bondservants of Christ, also identified later in the book as the ecclesia, or what most call the church. The way we see doulos used in the New Testament is in the usual way you would think of as a slave, as if the person called a slave was owned by another and completely subject to their will. The apostles of Jesus in their New Testament writings refer to the followers of Christ as bondservants and instructs them, us, how to act accordingly in their role as bondservants. This is from Romans chapter 6, 22, of course written by Paul. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to holiness and its end to eternal life. In 1 Peter 2, 15-17, we read the words of Peter. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Any truly born-again Christian voluntarily became a slave and possession when they allowed Jesus to purchase them. They belong to and are owned by Jesus. Our reward is secure and lasts forever because of what our master and owner, Jesus, has done for us. Our reward is that we've been saved from the eternal damnation that we deserve. It's that we'll be privileged to rule and reign with him in his kingdom that he'll bring with him at his return. It's only through God's grace and by his mercy that he's rescued us, allowing us to dwell with him and to serve him throughout all of eternity. We did nothing to gain favor with God and did nothing to deserve to be ransomed. He was or is in no way obligated to pay for our sins that condemn us to eternal death. It's because of the ransom that was paid that the born-again Christian is a possession or a bondservant of Christ. Understanding the practices of slavery in ancient Israel helps to further understand the kind of bondage involved with being a bondservant. Uh, Listen to these words found in Leviticus, chapter 25, verses 47 to 49. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother besides him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him. In ancient Israel, if one had incurred a debt which they couldn't pay, they could voluntarily sell themselves into slavery. There was normally no forced slavery in Israel. However, debts had to be paid. Similarly, when human beings sin, they incur a debt that they cannot pay themselves. Because the penalty for that debt is death. In ancient Israel, one could voluntarily allow another to pay their debt for them in exchange for becoming their bondservant. Jesus is the only one who has the bank, so to speak, to be able to pay our debt and redeem us. Once we voluntarily allow this to happen and accept him as our master, our debt is paid and we become his bondservants. How do we reconcile being both free 
and a slave at the same time. How does a slave become a joint heir with Jesus? How can we, a group of bondservants, be considered a royal priesthood? Slavery has taken on many forms in history. Becoming a bondservant, specifically in Israel, subject to Hebrew laws, was nothing like we now might picture someone becoming enslaved. Like they're chased down, captured, beaten, chained up, thrown on a ship, starved, humiliated, stripped of all dignity and identity, and then sold, only to be treated like a beast of burden. In Israel, on the other hand, a slave became a member of the slave owner's family, just as if they were adopted. He or she enjoyed all the same rights as the rest of the family, with the exception of the inheritance. Additionally, every seven years, all slave contracts were considered canceled or forgiven, and the slave could go free. You can read about all that in Exodus chapter 21, verse 2. Well, on the surface, the Hebrew slave-master relationship comparison to the follower of Christ's relationship with Jesus looks like it starts to break down for a couple of reasons. Although treated like a family member, a Hebrew slave does not receive inheritance as a family member, while the elect of God are considered joint heirs with Jesus. Secondly, unlike Hebrew slaves, there's no seven-year clause that gets us out of our sin debt and cancels our slave contract. The interesting thing is that although a slave had the option of going free after six years, they also had the option of voluntarily staying and becoming a slave forever. Listen to this from Exodus chapter 21, verses 5 and 6. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall forever be his slave. I would gladly have my ear pierced for Jesus, but I am so glad he doesn't require that of us now. If one understands what it means to become a bondservant, and accepts Jesus' offer to pay off her or his debt, and he or she plainly declares, I love my master, and I will not go out free on my own. Jesus will mark him or her as his own possession, and she or he will become his servant for all eternity. As previously stated, in ancient Israel, even though a slave was treated as part of the family as though he or she was adopted, they would not ever be in line to inherit anything. How does this reconcile with being a joint heir with Jesus? Galatians 4.7 says, Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. After Jesus' human flesh died on the cross, he rose to eternal life and was given all power and authority. Everything that is, is his. When you accept his offer of redemption and become his possession, it's as if you were adopted into his eternal family. The book of Romans talks a lot about this adoption. It's not necessary to be an heir in the normal sense. Usually, descendants only receive an inheritance if someone dies and stays dead. However, Jesus died, rose again, and will never die again. By being purchased and adopted by him, 
Those that belong to him will enjoy the benefits of being in his eternal family, where Jesus has possession of and authority over everything. To leave anyone with the impression that a true follower of Christ is only a slave of God in the sense that we would normally think of slaves would be an oversimplification causing an inaccurate image in most people's minds. One would understandably feel uncomfortable as a slave if their master were evil. That's not the case when the master is Jesus. With Jesus as our master, we need not ever fear the tasks that he gives us. He said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's recorded in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. I love my master. Have I ever mentioned that? According to Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 19, prior to being a slave or possession of God, we were slave to sin. And whether you believe it or not, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26 tells us that our old master was none other than Satan. To attempt to break the bondage of sin outside of belonging to and relying on Jesus Many enslave themselves to the law. Being adopted into Jesus' family, you are no longer in bondage to Satan, sin, or the law. Not that we don't sin any longer, but belonging now to our master, Jesus, we are absolutely free from our old master. Our position as slaves to Christ in this physical world is voluntary, as far as what we think of as free will goes. If you choose not to become a bondservant of Jesus, no one on this earth will hunt you down or beat you. However, after living a life in bondage to sin and Satan and the law, you will ultimately be subject to Jesus and know him as your judge. There's a famous parable in the New Testament often quoted about a man who secretly finds a pearl he feels is so valuable that he sells everything else he owns in order to buy it. Here's that parable. This is found in Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man, seeking good pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, and bought it. If you're familiar with this parable, you may have been taught that the pearl in this passage represents Jesus and that the one who finds the pearl is the one who chooses to follow Jesus. Those that choose Jesus are to go and sell, or in other words, leave everything else behind, give up their personal dreams or possessions, etc., in order to gain salvation and follow Jesus. This explanation seems to work until we pay attention to what else we know about salvation. That is a gift from God, and there's nothing we can do to give or do to earn it. And it's God that does the choosing, not us. Go ahead. Sell everything, give everything, and do everything. And march into the throne room of God and say, Give me the pearl, the one called Jesus. And all you're going to get from the one sitting on the throne is, I don't want your stuff. Who do you think gave it to you in the first place? We could sell everything we own 
leave everything and everybody behind, and still fall miserably short of the purchase price of salvation. There is but one who gave up everything in order to purchase from among men the pearls that are to make up the special people of God, and that is Jesus. Jesus is the merchant of the parable that gave his very life in order to purchase those who belong to him. With an understanding of our relationship as bondservants to Christ, what then should our attitude towards our needs, comforts, and affairs of this world be? How should we approach God in prayer? Does our Master, who owns us free and clear, owe us anything more than He has already paid for us? If we do an especially good job for Him, can we expect a bonus? Here's a little story straight from the mouth of Jesus that gives us some of these answers. This is from Luke chapter 17, verses 7 to 10. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. In this parable, Jesus is in the role of the master, and those who he has purchased with his blood are his servants. The point of the parable is slaves are supposed to do what they are told and not expect anything more than they have already have in return. The master always comes first. When you consider what we already have by being adopted into God's family, is there really anything more you need? When you study the life of Jesus, do you find an individual who is seeking comfort and pleasure in this world? What then do we do with those preachers and teachers who teach doctrines contrary to the life of Christ while he dwelled on the earth? Jesus said, The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. That's found in Matthew chapter 10, verse 24. If you're a human being, you'll likely wrestle with the wants and desires of your flesh until the day you die. As for me, I struggle with these things, and I need to continually consider the following code of conduct in regards to my relationship with my master, Jesus. Now, I'm not trying to add to what the Bible has to say about how the elect of God should conduct themselves. However, the term bondservant brings with it an implied meaning, as though we should already have some idea as to what it means to be one. How is a bondservant expected to conduct his or herself? Does a slave order around his master? Of course not. Good and wise slaves approach their master humbly and realize their purpose is to please him. A good slave does everything with his master in mind. The slave owns nothing. Everything they have, including their very lives, belongs to their master. However, they don't spend the money or possessions their master has entrusted to them unwisely. Although they may seek wise counsel, they also don't let others besides their master tell them how to spend what has been entrusted to them. Every activity the slave takes on is only done after they consider if it benefits the master's household or something the master would want the slave to be doing 
if he were to show up. As they walk through their community conducting their master's business, they realize they represent their master's household and conduct themselves accordingly. The slave is accountable only to the master for their actions. No one else. There are no second-in-command masters. However, the master expects his slaves to remind each other of that accountability. The master also expects them to love one another and treat one another as they would want to be treated, and as though it's in the master's presence. Argue all you like about law versus grace, or faith versus works. Try to come up with motivations on why not to sin after the sin has all been paid for by Jesus on the cross. I'll listen, and I'll continue to learn. But for me, my motivation for trying to please Jesus is as simple, and I emphasize the word try. It's as simple as understanding that I am no longer my own. After dying to myself and being reborn a new creature, I have a new identity. I'm a bondservant of my Lord Jesus Christ. I belong to a master who I want to please, not because I'm trying to pay him back, that's not possible, but because I love my master. I may mess up all the time, and believe me, I do, but he is forgiving and knows that I'm trying. My master knows me very well. In fact, he created me. He does not hold who he created me to be against me. He knows I am flawed, that I am subject to battling my own flesh continually, and that I am still learning. I don't obey my master out of a fear that I might break a law and be found guilty or think my salvation is in jeopardy. I want to be obedient to him because I love him and I don't want to hurt him. I am a willing slave who has been won over by a loving master. Through the faith he gave me, I love him because I understand who he is and what he's already done for me. My love is not dependent on what he could do for me. A slave never takes center stage, even in their own life. Their life is not their own to control. Most of us cannot come close to relating to what it means to be a slave. How different the slave's life is compared to what we see around us in our culture. One of the most important things for a disciple of Christ to learn in regards to how to follow Jesus is to understand who they are in Christ. To embrace being a bondservant and desire to please the master is life-changing. It causes one to set their affections on things above, where the master currently resides and not in their own temporary situation. Today, Christians are bombarded with teaching that tells them how to become the center of their universe. Of course, you've probably not seen any sermon titles like How to Really Become the Center of Your Universe. But the message is preached regularly on how to get things to go your way. How to be victorious in this present age. How to be healthy, wealthy, popular, and happy. The materialistic pleasures of this world are all under the control of our God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And because we are joint heirs with Jesus, it's all ours for the asking. We hear teaching on how to be in dominion over this earth and manipulate the powers of the universe through leading the right kind of life and praying the right and effective prayer. We're taught that we can move the hand of God 
by holding him accountable to the universal rules or promises that he put into place. We're told that in prayer, we may march boldly into the throne room of the Almighty God and demand him to give us what he said he would. We're told to memorize scriptures as though they're magic spells or incantations in order to speak God's own words back to him, as if God should have been warned, anything you say can and will be held against you. We're told to pray the prayer of Jabez or trust in the latest biblical formula for success to get what we want. If we do absolutely everything right and still don't see results for our efforts, we're told we either have hidden sin in our lives or we're not tithing or we don't have enough faith. The sad fact is that what many of these me-centered teachings within the modern church have done is to aid believers in their selfish pursuits. These doctrines are equipping the saints to be the center of their own universe and not to be good servants of Christ. For the Christian and non-Christian alike, putting ourselves at the center of the universe sums up the root of all sin, being self-centered instead of God-centered. It's the difference in thinking that it's all about me as opposed to it's all about the Master, Jesus. Throughout the last century until now, we're taught to read through the Bible and see how it is all relating and applies to our lives, rather than seeing that the Bible is all about the life of our Master, Jesus, and the story God's trying to tell us about Him. It's a gross understatement to say that there's still plenty of room for meeting our own needs and experiencing great pleasure on this earth when God is the center of our universe. What a relief it is for the bondservant when he or she comes to realize that her or his sovereign master knows everything, is everywhere, has everything under control, and has the best interests of his servants in mind. Until that realization occurs, many spend their prayer time making requests to God about things that they believe would be good for them from their limited, human, self-centered, tiny corner of the world, 21st century, middle-class, three-dimensional, carbon-based, limited self-control perspective. The follower of Christ, who's been purchased with his blood, must answer the question of where the center of the universe is by saying it is centered around God and not themselves. Adam and Eve in the garden wanted to follow their own plan and not God's. Everyone, save one, Jesus, since that time has committed and now commits the same act of self-centered rebellion repeatedly. As long as one lives in their physical body, Christian or not, they're subject to committing these non-God-centered acts. Well, despite being purchased with the blood of the Lamb, my body continues to pay attention to its five senses. Even though I'm a servant of Jesus, I still have a brain that has been hardwired with certain behaviors and memories. My brain still seeks to be comfortable and experience pleasure. My physical body is acting consistent with the way it was created. I constantly seek to satisfy my, what I think are, needs. The world around me that God also created is full of opportunities and temptations that would feed our needs and desires. Nevertheless, as a servant of Jesus, I need to endeavor to not misuse His creation by engaging in selfish pursuits. I must not use His creation in a manner that it was not designed for or intended to be. 
Realizing that my good master wants healthy, happy slaves, I need to endeavor to avoid any activities that are not glorifying or profitable to my master. Above all, I must remember that I've been bought with a very high price and am a possession of Christ. Remember 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. A follower of Christ's outlook and perspective on life is to be that of a slave or bondservant that puts their own life and desires aside and lives to please their master. 1 Corinthians 7 verses 22 and 23 says, For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, also he that is called, being free, is Christ's servant. You are bought with a price. Be not the servants of men. I am confident in adding, whether that's men inside or outside the church. What does one do to be a good and faithful servant until the master returns? Simply stated, they will do what their master told them to do as recorded in his word. The master also set a good example for his servants. A good servant will live a life patterned after his or her master. Jesus said, And why call you me Lord, Lord? And do not do the things which I say. That's in Luke chapter 6, 46. In John 13, 13 to 17, Jesus also says, You call me Master and Lord, and you well say so, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. It's the truth when I say to you, The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. The parable of the servant found in Matthew 24 and Luke 12, 42-48 indicates that those who believe themselves to be bondservants of Jesus but are not living their lives in such a way to give meaning to that belief are fooling themselves. They appear to be no better off than the hypocrite or unbeliever in the end, being assigned a place with them. The Luke account of the parable of the servants clearly says that those who have knowledge of what Jesus expects of them, but don't do it, will be worse off than those who don't know what Jesus expects of them at all, the unbeliever. The words weeping and gnashing of teeth are used several times by Jesus. These words are typically associated with also being cast into outer darkness and into a furnace of fire. There's some references for you if you want to look that up. Matthew 8:12, Matthew 13:42, 13:50, 22:13 and Matthew 25:30. All of these use the same imagery. These are common images of what we normally associate with hell, the place assigned to hypocrites and the unbeliever. Hell is the holding place for the unbeliever, the damned. It's the place of torment. It's not just the grave. We will all, righteous and unrighteous, end up in the grave unless the Lord returns before we die. Hell is meant as a disincentive to sin. It is a severe penalty for sinning. But is hell even real? 
Believe it or not, that's a controversial subject within the church. Jesus' parables were all based on situations that would be commonly understood by those he was addressing. He did not engage in speaking in the realm of science fiction, fantasy, or unrealistic or unreasonable scenarios when he taught. Because of this, we can learn about what Jesus and those he was speaking to in the first century generally thought to be true. Since Jesus is my master, the great enlightenment, the age of reason, 21st century philosophy, and science be damned. I trust what he believed and taught to be true. One parable Jesus taught had to do with the place of unbelievers. Here's that parable. There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received good things, and likewise, Lazarus, evil things. But now he's comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a fixed great gulf, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from you. Then the rich man said, I ask you then, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he might testify to them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. That story is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. There are many points to be made from this story, but here are the observations I'd like to make in regards to the place of the unbeliever it's talking about. Hell is a real place, or Jesus would not have told a story like this. There are buku New Testament scriptures supporting the idea that hell is real. The souls of the unbelievers go there when they die and will remain there until their final judgment. While those souls are in hell, they have consciousness and are aware of their surroundings. They are not asleep. They are miserable. Hell is an unpleasant place of torment. Those who have died and reside there have deep regrets. There are flames and great thirst in hell. It appears that even though the souls in hell have left their physical bodies behind, they can still recognize other souls. It also appears that they can communicate. They'll remember the things of this life and the living they left behind. If hell were simply the grave, meaning the cold ground that we place bodies in, and if people were simply unconscious and only experienced silent blackness until the final judgment, as some believe, 
Jesus' parable would be pointless and based on fantasy and falsehood. That would make this parable unique to all others he ever told. One day, after the judgment of the dead has taken place, according to the book of Revelation, both hell and death will be destroyed in the lake of fire. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 20, verses 13 to 14. One may ask how it is that a person can be sentenced to suffer torment prior to being put on trial and judged. After all, aren't we innocent until being proven guilty? Confusion can be generated when we mistake human governments and judicial systems for God's sovereign judgment. Besides personally witnessing the transgressions of the believers throughout their entire lives, God already knows who will be declared innocent by means of redemption. It will only be those that belong to His Son. Everyone is appointed once to die, and after that the judgment. Just as there is a difference between a jail, where people are held pending their trial, and a prison, where people with felonies are sentenced to go, there is a difference between being held in hell and ultimately being sentenced by God and cast into the lake of fire. As an inmate in jail, you may not have been yet found guilty while awaiting your trial. However, as I know, being a former jailer, like hell, jail is generally not a nice place to spend your time. Here's Mark's version of this same parable in the Olivet Discourse. This is found in Mark chapter 13, verses 34 to 37. It is like a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave his servants authority, and told every man what to do, and told the gatekeeper to watch. So likewise, you watch, because you don't know what time the master will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. God forbid he comes suddenly and finds you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Although the watchful message is consistent, the Gospel of Mark's version of this parable contains a little bit of variation from what we find in the Matthew account. Here we see a similar story in which the master of a house goes on a journey and puts his servants in charge. In the Mark account, we see a gatekeeper, or a porter, with specific duties of watching. Yet, what Jesus says to one, he ultimately says to all, Watch! Every one of Jesus' followers share this responsibility. No one should be caught sleeping and relying on others to be watchful. The key message in the Gospel of Mark is watchfulness and all that it implies. The secondary message is that no one will know exactly when the Master will return. In summary, if you've been purchased by the blood of Jesus, He has paid a great price for you. Being a bondservant of Christ also means that you have been adopted into His eternal family with all rights and privileges of being a member of that family. Jesus' bondservants are to keep watch and faithfully take care of their Master's business while He's away. It will not be good for those servants who are not doing so. In fact, it may be an indication that they were never a servant of Jesus at all, but rather a poser, a hypocrite, an unbeliever. Hell is a real place where hypocrites and unbelievers go after they die while they await their final judgment. Jesus has given his followers a strong imperative command in regards to his coming. Stay awake and be watchful. 
Few places in the Gospels contain such strong and repetitious commands from Jesus. Well, guess what? That's the end of the Olivet Discourse as found in the books of Mark and Luke. The Olivet Discourse continues into the next chapter of the book of Matthew, and that's where we're going to pick it up next time. Until then, God bless, stay watchful, be at peace, and Maranatha. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.